Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast. Elevating emergency nursing, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Hi, Sergey. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on to the show. I'm glad that we're able to not have technical difficulties this time around. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> so, Sergey, um, you had another um, research article that just came out in March 2018 um, concerning the continuous in- intravenous subdissociative dose ketamine infusion um, for managing pain in emergency departments. Um, it's very, very interesting. We, I, so I want to talk to you about it a little bit more just as a follow-up. Um, even though we had technical difficulties, so the podcast episode where you, you explained, uh, how to, uh, the logistics of administering subdissociative ketamine doses for pain ended up being one of the most popular episodes of 2017. Wow. Thank you so much for telling me that. Encouraging. Uh, It's very encouraging. (laughs) It is. So what I find very impressive is um, subdissociative dose ketamine infusions. It really had a significant pain reduction. Um, So about 65% of people... Based, this is based on your research, um, uh, the numbers, 65% at 60 minutes and then 68% at 120 minutes, which is really impressive because, you know, usually at the 60-minute mark, uh, most people don't have much pain reduction. Yeah, that's that's very true. And um, sub-dissociative ketamine itself, as a member from the light, last pause we talk about, there is a very unique set of properties that ketamine has, which makes the continuous infusion or even short-term infusion over 15 to 20 minutes much more practically appealing than just single push dose and just see what's going to happen in lieu of specific unique pharmacokinetics of ketamine. It's rapid onset and it's this super rapid saturation of NMDA receptors it will give you this initial jolt of pain relief. But if you do it relatively slowly, the saturation will be a little slower, but it will last much, much longer. And that's why I believe results of patients experiencing significant reduction in pain at 60, 120 minutes, direct consequence of this particular way of giving ketamine. So um, on in this particular paper, um, was there a difference in benefits whether the patient had, um, let's say, a short like a short infusion bolus dose and then the continuous intravenous uh, ketamine infusion? Or did you just start some people only on a ketamine infusion and just skip the short infusion bolus dose? We did. There were very minimal subset of patients who did not receive a loading dose in the form of the short infusion of ketamine. I believe we're talking about close to 12 to 13%. Reasons of it predominantly related to patients' age. What we found was older the patients are, uh, more psychoperceptual side effects, even with the decreased dose they will develop. So for some of the elderly patients, we're talking about 90, 92, 95 even, 
uh, we've decided to drop the loading dose and start with a continuous effusion from the get-go with a slow upward titration until pain gets optimized to the level patients willing to accept and the psychoperceptual side effects would kept at the bare minimum. Okay, so that's very interesting. Um, do you think that you might have to skip the loading dose or maybe have a lower dose starting at what age then? Like maybe 65 or... Or do you also kind of consider the health, like how healthy a 65-year-old is? So health is important, but with respect to ketamine, you only need to worry about technically some underlying liver or renal insufficiencies, which directly related to metabolism of ketamine. You know, pre-existing cardiac disease, increased intracranial pressure, ocular pressure, COPD is even they're irrelevant because we're using sub-dissociative, one-tenth of a dose we're accustomed to use. I'm going to jump the gun a little bit. We just recently completed our geriatric ketamine study. It's called Geriatric Trial, which is in the process of being published, I hope, where we randomized patients 65 years and older to a 0.3 milligram per kilogram dose of ketamine, given over 15 minutes, to 0.1 milligram per kilogram of morphine, given over 15 minutes as well. And what we found is that at 30 and 60 minutes, there were no difference with respect to pain relief, but once again, even 0.3 milligram per kilogram given over 15 minutes was associated with close to 72% of elderly patients experiencing feeling of a reality at 15 and 30 minutes. So I think you're right. Maybe in elderly patients, we should probably consider dosing maybe 0.2, even 0.1. It looks like there is a trial brewing somewhere that we should find optimum dose for any patient. Let's say compare 0.1 to 0.2 to 0.3 and say which one would give you better pain relief at the expense of a relatively lesser degree of psychoperceptual side effects. I really like that. Um, I, I've been noticing just in general geriatrics, any medication administration to geriatrics, the, um, the effects are very different. They seem to they seem to have more side effects. I mean, it doesn't even have to be ketamine, just anything in general. Um, so I'll be really eager to see the study get published. Um, when can we expect this? Well, we've submitted for publication, and I promise you, as soon as I get any notification, phone, email, anything, even your Twitter feed, that congratulations, your paper has been accepted for publication, you'll be the first one to know, I promise. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, so let's get back to, uh, so for the continue. so now we're going to just continue on the continuous intravenous sub subdissociative uh, ketamine infusions. Um, in this paper, it shows a lot that uh, the people who ended up getting the most benefit uh, were people who had cancer pain, oncology pain, uh, pancreatitis, and Crohn's disease. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So the advantage of ketamine, specifically in in subset of patients with suffering from variety of chronic painful condition, including cancer pain, is pretty much unmatched or unsurpassed by any other analgesics. Chronic patients' pain, suffering from phenomena of chronic sensitization, hyperalgesia, and allodynia, which NMDA blockade, such as what the ketamine does, reduces to almost zero. And I found that in the setting of chronic intractable pain, ketamine is to be the most beneficial analgesic modality given either adjunct to other non-opioid or opioid analgesics or even by itself. And I was very happy to see that our retrospective chart review showed that, yes, indeed, patients with chronic 
cancer, on and cancer pain, let's say chronic pancreatitis, even Crohn's disease, which by virtue of it, they do have a chronic abdominal pain with some exacerbation from time to time, benefited the most. That's really great. Um, and then also um, another population group that seemed to really have um, a great reduction in pain scores were these unknown etiology abdominal pain. Um, how much of it do you think might there might be like a psych component to that? Well, psych component could be present. And, you know, you know, there's a lot of now literature and push that apparently ketamine is good for psychiatric emergencies, including depression. But being more practical and uh, with respect to etiology of this chronic or even acute non-differentiated abdominal pain, some of them have a functional component to it, either hyper or hyperactive disorder. Some of them easily can have uh, abdominal pain as a secondary cause of toxicological emergencies. Let's say um, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, which ketamine and Haldol works terrifically good. So any functional, not organic, functional abdominal disorder, which relates to some kind of neuropathic component, will be easily and effectively offset by using sub-dissociative dose ketamine. All right. That sounds really good. Um, I think this is just one of those areas we probably will have to explore more um, um, because I think, you know, like you said, Haldol seems to do well. And I mean, recently I just had a patient gave Dilaudid for an unknown etiology abdominal pain, already had probably like three ED workups in the past week, shows up for more abdominal pain. And gave hydromorphone with no relief. But when I hung a bag of famatidine, he all of a sudden got instant relief. Um, So there was nothing, like all the CAT scans were negative. There was no, I mean, the most unimpressive blood work that, I mean, probably better than mine. And, <laughs> and, um, and all it took was, you know, 50 mLs of matadine. And he's like, you know what, I'm feeling really great. And I said, Oh, you know, well, this, this is medicine that, you know, you know, let's try this medicine and see if this will help your abdominal pain. And I think it had more to do in, in his situation in particular, I think it had more to do with the fact that he felt that this drip, like something going through intravenously was what was helping him. And, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we discharged him and he um, had just an outpatient follow up with GI or something like that. But um, I I, I find that this is uh, often the case when you can't find any organic reason. No, I agree with you 100 percent. And you just brought a word hydromorphone which gets me eerie to begin with. You know, not every single patient with any type of abdominal pain requires opioids from the get-go. You know, some patients with a functional abdominal disorder may just need to have a conversation. A normal physical exam, they may not even need any type of interventions. Some of them maybe need just cognitive, you know, biofeedback or maybe some psychosocial uh, counseling and encouragement and reassurance, and they'll be just fine. I completely agree with you. Um... I just want to move on quickly, but like onto the, I just want to go back to the oncology cancer pain. Um, So this is kind of jumping the gun a little bit, but um, I've noticed that a lot of um, the oncology patients, they already have like 
kind of like a multiple modality approach in terms of getting um, relief. And a lot of them, I think, do well. Uh, They do well with, you know, the synergistic effect of different medications. Um, But then for the... when, when you add ketamine to these patients, and, and you spoke about it a little bit earlier, are the ones, are the oncology patients that are coming in that kind of need the ketamine infusion? It's just like whatever multiple modality approach that has been working well is just all of a sudden it's not working well anymore, or like there's just like they kind of get to this like max, I don't know, I'm ha- having air quotation marks here, max dosing. Um, and then it's just like ketamine just kind of fills in that last component to get that relief. Yes, you you absolutely correct. So as an example, you know, you have a someone with a cancer, let's say it's in remission, it's a one thing. But if somebody gets to the point that they start to metastasize and pain becomes unbearable, and we're talking about a patient who's taking a large dose of an opioid, for instance, they can close to 300 to 400 of morphine uh, extended release tablets. They can have a fentanyl patches. And in between, the, they take, let's say, hydromorphone pills for the breakthrough pain. And you round them up and you get your MMEs at 6, 7, 8, 900 per 24 hours. These are inhumane doses, but these are patients who are accustomed to it because they're chronically opioid tolerant. Now, this patient comes in with this armamentarium of opioid analgesics on board, and there's MMEs, and they're in pain. Do we really believe that single dose of four milligram of intravenous morphine will do the trick? No. Do we believe one milligram of hydromorphine will help them? No. They're already on opioids, and they're technically telling you, I'm so tolerant, I'm so hyperalgesic to it, I need something else. And that's what ketamine comes in. Good example. I had a colleague of mine who, on two different occasions over the past two months, took care of patient with intractable, inhumane level of pain related to metastatic cancers. And those patients were first time given ketamine. Short infusion, and one patient had short infusion and continuous infusion for three hours. Those both patients cried, and they said, this is the first time I felt pain-free once in five years, once in eight years. What amazes me is that despite the fact that our, you know, advances in pharmacological approach to cancer pain have gone so far out, not many patients on chronic cancer pain are receiving ketamine for pain. I believe it's a huge underuse of such a medication. And me jumping the gun, I know for the fact, ketamine comes in the form of tablets and liquids, which specifically is for patients with intractable cancer pain who cannot tolerate opioids due to A, the original limit, B, side effects becomes intolerable. Yeah, maybe this is the uh, population that's very underserved, like you said. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I am far from... I don't really understand oncology very well, but I just know that from what I see, um, there is a point where they just can't handle, you know, these high doses, but they need the high doses. And it's like this um, risk and benefits doesn't even like quite cover it. Um, They just can't handle, like you said, like maybe they're just constantly vomiting or there's just other side effects that they just can't handle anymore, but they still don't have the pain relief. So, so ketamine might be the answer for that as well. I agree with you hundred percent. And once again, no matter how tolerant you are, ultimately by constantly increasing and playing with medication dosages, you'll get to the no man's land and you'll start having side effects that will be 
affecting and worsening your morbidity and frankly mortality. You know, constipation, nausea, vomit, one thing, pruritus on top, but we're talking about respiratory depression, CNS depression, requirements of rescue naloxone. That's things become so real, unless we're talking about the palliation, end of life care and such. And once again, I do believe ketamine is highly underutilized in its sub-dissociative dosing regimen for patients with a cancer pain. I think we should be really using them more in our EDs for this type of patients. Yeah. Um, what what kind of do you do? Do you use the uh, PO dosing then in your shop? No. So this is when I'm having a dilemma because I'm educating people and again for the fact that ketamine does exist in oral forms. But I'm just trying to think for a second. Just imagine if we start prescribing oral ketamine. The opioid epidemic becomes irrelevant. Then we have we will turn entire country into the ketamine addict because ketamine has a very very high addictive properties and ketamine is highly abused in in United States. Maybe not the level of heroin and fentanyl and mix of the drugs and even prescription opioids, but I know for the fact it's highly abused. It's very recreationally used for high purposes. So I'm happy that there is a medication that will help patient with terminal cancer metastatic cancer, pain-related condition to feel better, but I would not prescribe ketamine for any other patients and because I'm afraid we're going to have a pandemic instead of epidemic. Right. I and, and that is a concern of mine as well. Just when I first, when I first started to understand how ketamine could just help with pain in general, that was actually a huge concern of mine because I know that there are ketamine parties and it is a drug of choice, a party drug of choice that a lot of people use. And they do come into the emergency department like the same way as if they're high off marijuana or, you know, maybe some LSD or something. So um, uh, so that is, I think it is important to be cautious in that sense as well to not create another problem. <laughs> right, well, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> Another thing that some people may not understand, I would like to, since we have this beautiful opportunity, I would like to bring to our listeners' attention that in the in immediate form of it, when you start using ketamine, of course you get high and you get a little, uh, you know, tranquil and euphoric and you feel great and grandiose and you get this vivid dreams because it's still PCP derivative. But what I want to emphasize is that on rare occasion in my shop, it's relatively frequent now, you're going to have a young people presenting with urinary tract symptoms, mostly dysuria, burning and pain and urination. And surprisingly male, you do the workup and everything's negative and they come again and they come again and again. And the only reason you can figure out what's wrong with them if you ask a specific question, do you, do you not use ketamine? It just so happens that ketamine, out of all the organs in the body, with exception after brain, affects bladder. It causes interstitial cystitis. If you caught it earlier, you can tell patients stop ketamine, they'll, they'll be fine. But reality is it causes irreversible damage in the treatment of choice, cystectomy, and ileal conduit. And I've seen one patient who was 27-year-old with his stoma already in place because he lost his bladder due to chronic recreational ketamine abuse. Wow. I knew that it caused, you know, problems but I didn't realize that it was that severe and I didn't know that it was irreversible. Yeah, that's unfortunate. If you interfere early, once again, you talk to patients, but you know, once you get to the level that you enjoy high and you become somewhere, you know, dependent, tolerant and ultimately addicted to it, you know, it's easy to say done, done. But once again, young people with 
urinary tract symptoms, negative workups on multiple occasions, it's kind of prudent to ask the question, do you use abuse or use ketamine on a recreational basis? And you might be surprised. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that will be something I'll start to ask when with that presentation now. Um, you had mentioned when we were talking about oncology patients, uh, the concern of like respiratory depression. Um, so another population um, is the sickle cell population. So in your study, there weren't that many people who were enrolled um, who had sickle cell. But um, do you think that maybe there is some benefit for the sickle cell population who have in, who's in crisis? Um, I'm a little bit sick of having these patients uh, have very high levels of hydromorphone uh, injections, and then they're on a PCA pump of hydromorphone. And I have to put these patients on telemetry monitoring. Uh, and often they go cyanotic, and I have to give a little Narcan. Um, and then the first thing that they say is I'm in pain. I need pain medication, but it's not clear. Their speech is not clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, your, your scenario, the picture you just painted, it's unfortunate, but it's such a true picture, which absolutely makes me go in bunkers. Um, sickle cell patients, as a subset, you know, it's, it's a very, very challenging group of people to deal when it comes to painful they basically have a painful crisis. Uh, practically, you know, because we, not us only emergency medicine, in general, we as a physicians, I believe we've contributed to a iatrogenic opioid dependence tolerance and addiction on behalf of hydromorphone. We made them all hydromorphonophilic and morphinophobic because I've yet to find a sickle cell patient who would not ask for hydromorphone. That's besides the point. The point being, there is no randomized control trials as of yet that shows that ketamine works better. But there are studies that clearly shows if you use sub-dissociative dose ketamine as an adjunct to an opioid, you can do two things. Some patients can be weaned off PCA opioids much sooner. Some patients can stop opioids entirely. But for the most part, close to 90% of patients were able to have their opioid reduced by 50%. I had intermittent success with the sickle cell patients in my ED. If I can establish an IV access, I spent at least an hour convincing them to try this medication. And I've had great success of it in the ED. But now imagine if I have to admit this patient to the floor, then ketamine gets stopped and they go back up on the floor and they get a PCA hydromorphone and 45 minutes later, they're purple, they're cyanotic, they're not breathing well and they need to have an naloxone reversal and ultimately get shipped to ICU. So before we do this, I believe we need to have interdepartmental protocols with a buy-in from pharmacy. We need to have a clinical pharmacy to help us out. We make sure nurses are in as a buy-in, but we need to be able to use ketamine in DD and then transfer these patients on the floor on ketamine for their own benefits. Right. And I think that's actually probably a huge barrier right now. So I think that uh, more people are willing to use ketamine in emergency departments. I think, you know, mainly partly to you and your research, but um, I think people are more you know, they feel more at ease to give ketamine um, in sub subdissociative doses in the ED. But the problem is, is that for these patients that do need to be admitted, then the rest of the hospital does not seem to be okay with it. Um, 
so I think this this is actually a barrier uh, right now, but this is also more on the newer end of things. So I I mean, I hope it doesn't take too long for this barrier to be overcome. <laughs> well, I certainly hope, and I agree with you 100%. From an uh, operational point of view, one of the options, one of the way to offset this barrier is if uh, the institutional hospitals do have a capability to use a clinical decisional unit or APSA unit. And if you have a departmental protocol, which is, let's say, co-signed by director of nursing, ED people, and clinical pharmacist, you might be able to admit patient with a painful vesicles of crisis of sickle cell origin on continuous infusion of subdissociative doskeramine to CDU or to APSA unit up to 24 hours. And if pain gets better, either as an adjunct or as a sole uh, agent, pain gets better up to 24 hours, you can discharge and home follow-up. If it doesn't get better, then you can get, you know, pain consult, hemon consult, and then you see what can be done. But at least there's a way of initially manage these patients without exuberant amount of hydromorphone on board and make them feel actually better. And have you, um, have you been talking to, like, the pain consult or the pain management team over at your shop, um, do, are they involved at all with subassociative ketamine or is it just kind of in the ED? Well, as of right now, it's still limited to the ED. We were able to put a protocol together. I was very proud and I'm always proud to announce that one of my clinical nurse educator in the ED put together a protocol for subdissociative dose ketamine continuous infusion for patients who are going to PACU, SICU, CCU, or even telemetry for uh, non-chronic acute postoperative or traumatic pains. We're slowly getting warm up towards our human colleagues, but the battle is not going to be easy because I'm not sure there is a great deal of dissonance. There's a great deal of, you know, semi-aversion to ketamine as an analgesic, partially maybe because there's a knowledge barrier, partially because they're accustomed to use hydromorphone, morphine, fentanyl, and such and such and such. The talks are in progress, but look, common goal is a patient care. If you can provide safe, judicious, and effective pain management without putting patients into ICU on a respirator and using naloxone, then we have a shot. Yeah, I think I think there's a shot. Um, but that's excellent to hear that uh, the clinical nurse educator was able to put together a protocol. <laughs> um, so I just want to go over administration review one more time. So, um, so starting dose... You're using like 0.1 milligrams per kilo per hour. And and then you're titrating every 30 minutes by 2.5 to 5 milligrams. What exactly are you looking for? Like, how do you know how much to titrate? So like, what are you, let's say 30 minutes pass and this patient is, you know, still having some pain. What makes you say, okay, I'm going to titrate up by 2.5 versus 5 milligrams? Well, the, the first question is you approach the patient, how do you feel? And the patient says, well, I'm still in pain. And then the follow-up question is, would you like to have more of the pain medication? If patient says yes, and then right before I start trading up, ask the questions, are you feeling weird? Are you feel like you having out-of-body experiences? Are you feel too nauseous? Or dizziness is driving you crazy? So I'm just looking for this psychoperceptual component that may interfere with the patient's well-being at this very moment. If patient tells me, I'm still in pain, but I'm okay otherwise, I can go by five. If patient tells me, pain is a little better, and I feel like I'm getting more dizzy or I feel this weird sensation that I'm quick sending, then I'm either 
continued present dose or a go by 2.5. I see. And um, so when you say you're going to increase by 2.5, just to be clear, let's say you started at 0.1 milligrams. Now, are you doing, uh, let's say you increase by 2.5. Is it now they're infusing at 2.6 milligrams per kilo per hour? No, it's I'm sorry, it's a fixed dose. This is not okay. a weight dose. We're I going 2.5 milligram or by 5 milligram up. Let's say I use 0.1 to starting dose. I usually do 0.1 to 0.15. Let's say 0.15 makes per kilo uh, for 70 kilos. It's 10 milligram per hour to start dose. So at half an hour, I go either to 12.5 or 15 milligram per hour. I see. So okay. initially is a weight-based dosing. Subsequent titration goes as a fixed 2.5 to 5. Okay. And so then that is given. So you just continue the uh, continuous infusion and then you just kind of give like almost like a PRN short, like a PRN bolus dose. In no, between? I just, no, I adjust the pump. Cause as I said, if oh, pump, pump okay. yeah. So pump is set for 10 milligram per hour. So I approach half an hour later. And if patient feels better, I leave it at 10 patient in agony. I, I change the pump to 15 milligram oh, per okay. hour. I get it. If now. patient feels in between, I go to 12.5. It's checks and balances. It, usually first hour, hour and a half, it's challenging because you just need to get a proper way to balance the rate of psychoperceptual side effect, which will be limiting factor of continuing infusion or pain. But once they're optimized, then you, you're good to go. Once again, in between, you can give either if you, an non-opioid, an opioid, analgesic if you need to. You know, you can easily have a, somebody with a hip fracture, you put, do the block, and they're still in pain. You can do a little of ketamine, and they're just doing fantastic. So other adjunct, other medications should be still instituted at proper discretions, but that's the ketamine itself infusion. That's how you usually manage. Okay. And then let's say, okay, now you've got like an optimal dosing for the, um, for the infusion, then you're still checking in every 30 minutes to start titrating down. No, then I leave a plateau, and if they're long enough with me in my edit, I usually give them about an hour or two to get better, and then I slowly titrate down. But usually, I never got in higher than 20 milligram per hour. That was the highest I've ever gotten to it. Usually, there's some between 8 to 14 that actually do well. The hardest part is sometimes you put the patient on continuous infusion. If I have a policy of our department, let's say a patient needs to go for an MRI. We have a policy the patient cannot go on continuous ketamine infusion even sub-dissociative dose ketamine out of ED. So we need to stop the pump, patient goes to MRI, comes back, and we back to 0, 0.0 because they're in agony, they're screaming, so we need to start it again. But if patient doesn't need to go anywhere else, you give them an hour or two of plateau, and you feel like they're doing great, you just start decreasing by 2.5 milligram downward. Okay. That sounds good. The weaning itself is not as important for sub-dissociative ketamine. You can simply stop and nothing happens. This is not, we're not talking about the benzos, we're not talking about propofol, we're not talking about fentanyl. We really don't need to worry about the rebound, anything, pretty much. It's a, such a minuscule as those, if you think of it, 15 milligram per hour. Right. It's, it's really, it's 0.12 milligram per kilogram per hour. It's really nothing. I guess my question was like, if you, let's say like, if you just, let's say they're done, two hours, they're like, I feel fine. Um, if I just stop it and then... Um, is there any kind of a downtime that you have to watch them before sending them home? Um, or do you know what I mean? Like, do you wait like 30 minutes, see how they do and then send them home? Or are you just kind of like, great, turned us off. Um, you know, they're breathing, they're anal times three, they're walkie talkie, not in any pain. We fixed them. 
give them the discharge paperwork and go home. Yeah. So that's what I usually do. And there's no real arbitrary time. How long you have to watch patients after ketamine? Short or continuous infusion stopped. There isn't because I've yet to see massive rebound of pain or, or psychoperceptual side effect, which never usually come back. The traditionally short-lived. The major key is if you're anticipating the patient ultimately will be discharged because you're doing additional things to it. You just need to load him up with either you know, ibuprofen, uh, acetaminophen. If you press for it, you may give him a additional dose of oral opioid if somebody has a broken ankle and such, but they're planning to be discharged. And once it's all sets in, you wait for the oral medication kick in, which is about, what, 30 minutes to 45. And then you can technically safely discharge patient home, pending, of course, evaluation that they're not, you know, Pre-holing, they're not tripping, <laughs> they're not having, you know, severe dizziness, they're not having awful nausea and vomiting that will need to be addressed. As you said, if they're alerting in times three, they still, I feel better, they walkie-talkie, they can tolerate PO and stuff like the usual thing. And have somebody who take them home, they can be discharged. Sounds great. <laughs> 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 okay, so... <laughs> um. Was there anything else you wanted to add it on SDK infusions? No, no, we did everything. I'm actually very happy you've given me this opportunity to talk about this. And I love sharing this stuff with you. And you're pushing the agenda, and I'm just supporting it from my side. This is great. Just I want people to be aware of it. It's a, it's a really good analgesic modality. There's lots of barriers with respect to administrative uh, component to it, who's allowed to, who's not allowed, what are the limitations, what the hospital wants and such. But at least in within the ED, we should be able to utilize it for a variety of painful conditions. That's one word, variety, including chronic cancer pain as well. Thank you so much. Um, I, I really like these opportunities of us discussing this. Um, I think it's, I, I think it's just going to be more and more common as more people understand it better. Um, and, and then, you know, we'll see over time. Um, I think that's as always time will tell. <laughs> oh, I agree with you hundred percent. That's a very enjoyable venue. And what are you doing is fantastic. I cannot be happier to publicly acknowledge your contribution to world of emergency medicine and beyond. And I'm happy to be here and to share in our experiences, our mutual experiences, such as we follow the common goal of patient care. Thank you so much. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, UMC Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 